Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for coming out today. Um, I'm, I'm pleased to introduce our, our speaker for today, who is Brad, Bradley Simpson. He's an assistant professor of history and international studies at Princeton University with a joint appointment in the history department and the Woodrow Wilson Center. He's best known for his work on U.S. Southeast Asian relations and especially uh, U.S. Indonesian relations. Uh, so uh, a few years ago, his book came out, a revised version of his doctoral dissertation at Northwestern University entitled, and I love the title, Economists with Guns, Authoritarian Development and U.S.-Indonesian Relations, 1960 to 1968. Last year when I organized uh, a conference on the United States and the Third World, some of you had the opportunity to see Brad participate via Skype from Bandung, Indonesia, becoming one of the first uh, conference participants at the Mershan Center to actually appear via Skype. He's currently working on a number of different projects. One, an interpretive uh, examination of the post-war relationship between the United States and Indonesia. And another, which he'll speak to us about today, which is an examination of self-determination, human rights, and international history. So Brad Simpson. So thanks, Bob, and thanks to all of you for coming out. Um, I'm going to speak today about a project that I've really just started uh, working on extensively. I'm actually going to bring I'm going to be talking about a project that I've really only recently embarked on. And so my comments are, are to some degree sort of speculative. Uh, and so I am anxious to get some feedback on this because usually when you're starting on a new project, uh, a lot of people will sort of come out of the woodworks and, and offer you lots of suggestions. And when you're considering trying to write a sort of synoptic history of self-determination and international order from the 1940s to the 1990s, which is what I'm doing, uh, you're especially going to bring a lot of people out who have lots of useful suggestions. And so I encourage you to, to comment, complain, criticize, uh, tell me some of the people and places and things that I'm, that I'm not dealing with adequately. Um, so one thing which I am glad to do is to give you a sense of the larger scope of this project, which will be a history of the descent of self-determination claims and, and movements from the 1940s through the 1990s, looking at the way in which self-determination as an idea uh, gained traction in international politics uh, long after Eros Manela's sort of Wilsonian moment in the aftermath of the First World War, and exploring uh, the descent of this idea through international history and the ways that it shaped understandings of human rights, of sovereignty, and of international order during and after the Cold War. Uh, but I'm going to drop in about halfway through uh, this book. Uh, it's usually best to start uh, at the beginning uh, for all you grad students, but I'm going to do the impolite thing and start in the middle uh, as a way of 
giving you a sense of how this story is shaping out at a very crucial moment in international history, uh, the mid-1970s and the end of European empires, a moment which I think is really pregnant with meaning for understanding uh, the evolving nature of, of human rights and self-determination claims and the ways in which these were rippling through international politics in often unexpected fashion. So I want to offer three brief episodes to suggest the deeply contested nature of self-determination in the 1970s. The first uh, is uh, an excerpt of a conversation between Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, uh, always entertaining for those of us who work in foreign relations. Uh, this is a conversation between Nixon and Kissinger in 1972, talking about uh, the United Nations and Africa. Uh, Henry Kissinger talking to President Richard Nixon. They've been going to put some stuff into U.S. Sec Secretary of State William Rogers' speech at the U.N., some stuff that we want more self-determination in Africa. And I said, absolute nonsense. Richard Nixon, more self-determination would mean more nations. Kissinger, that applies, they'll apply that to Mozambique and South Africa. They won't apply it to the black nations. Nixon, yeah, god damn it. Just think, 42 countries in Africa. 42 countries, that's ridiculous. A year later, the United Nations General Assembly again took up the issue of self-determination in the UN Committee on Terrorism, uh, which began discussing a resolution which would have marked one of the first definitive UN statements on terrorism. Discussions stalled uh, in, these, in these meetings over an inability to bridge the gap, as one discussant put it, on the relationship between action on international terrorism and the struggle for self-determination. Most African and Asian and socialist members of the UN General Assembly insisted that, quote, violations by states of human rights and fundamental freedoms, in particular, the refusal to recognize the right of peoples to self-determination, lay at the root of international terrorism. Needless to say, uh, many European countries, as well as the United States, bitterly disagreed. Three years later, however, in 1976, the US ambassador to the United Nations, Barbara White, spoke before the third committee of the UN General Assembly on, quote, the importance of the realization of the universal right of peoples to self-determination. White was speaking after the last sort of burst of decolonization that took place with the collapse of the Portuguese empire. And she noted that, quote, the achievement of self-determination must mark renewed efforts to guarantee human rights and the dignity of the individual. In other words, where self-determination has been achieved, human rights can begin. Now, this period witnesses the conjuncture of three potent dynamics, the collapse of European colonialism, the emergence of transnational human rights politics, and the proliferation of an ever-widening range of self-determination claims and movements. Most historians have viewed these as separate or parallel uh, distinct dynamics. I will argue, however, that they were not. I'd also argue it's no coincidence that the final collapse of European colonialism in the early 1970s paralleled the explosion of individual-based human rights activism in Europe, the US, and elsewhere. It's no coincidence, furthermore, that most post-colonial states and anti-colonial movements continued to insist that collective self-determination broadly construed was the first right from which all other rights derived. But as the late historian Kenneth Camille has observed, Western nations in the 1970s, and I'm quoting, did not agree that this was a fundamental human right, end quote. In fact, even as self-determination achieved the status of customary international law, and even as the era of formal European colonialism shuddered to an end, 
the United States, Britain, and other former colonial powers sought to contain the meaning of self-determination along imperial lines, rather than allowing it to encompass the realm of culture or more dangerously, international economic relations. Like human rights more broadly, the meaning of self-determination as a human right in the 1960s and 70s was fractured, and it was fought along lines that transcended neat east-west and north-south divides. In fact, I'll argue today and in the book project uh, that this is going to lead to, that a re-examination of the history of self-determination during this period suggests that there was no single human rights movement with a clear set of goals or even a rough consensus on what constituted core human rights. Rather, the human rights politics and discourses of the age were an ongoing contest in which alternative conceptions of rights, especially the right to self-determination, were either rejected by the colonial powers or, sub or subordinated as a result of often bitter political conflict within and between state bureaucracies, international forums, and in NGO boardrooms of organizations like Amnesty International. In this talk, I'm not going to attempt anything like a comprehensive history of self-determination in the period. Instead, I'm going to briefly survey the evolution of debates during the 1960s and 1970s about self-determination as a human right and gesture at a number of themes which I hope to take up at much greater length in my forthcoming book project, which will explore the legal, political, and cultural descent of self-determination claims and movements in post-1945 international relations. Instead, I'll briefly touch on the uneasy descent of self-determination claims at the United Nations, explore the colonial question in self-determination in the early 1970s, and examine some of the ways in which debates about primitivism and backwardness, secession, and economic sovereignty help to condition self-determination as a discourse in international politics. Now, there's lots of literature on the politics of human rights in the 20th century, and this is a sort of field information which is leading uh, to lots of interesting discoveries and is producing, uh, I think, in the next few years, a lot of tremendously exciting work. But we still lack similar treatments of self-determination's coterminous descent through 20th century international politics. The limited studies that we do have, such as Ares Manella's Wilsonian Moment, largely focus on a, on a slice of history, a certain snapshot of international politics, and don't really explore the evolution of self-determination as, as a way of thinking about sovereignty and human rights, as valuable as Ares Manella's work has been. The limited studies that we do have suggest that from the signing of the Atlantic Charter in 1941 and continuing through the 1948 signing of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that significant fissures had opened up within the post-colonial world as well as with the colonial powers and the socialist bloc as to the scope and meaning of self-determination as a human right. These debates, I would argue, were every bit as fierce as those over the Universal Declaration of Human Rights itself. And these debates were inseparable from broader political contests over post-colonial social, political, and economic organization, the nature of state sovereignty, and the future of European and U.S. informal empire. In this way, they intersected with, rather than mapping smoothly, onto other contemporary debates about the nature and scope of human rights, sovereignty, and international order. Now, historians and political scientists have treated self-determination claims and movements with a great deal of ambivalence. 
Most have consigned self-determination to the history of decolonization and use the term as a sort of shorthand for independence from European colonial rule. Those few treatments that exist, such as Roland Burke's important study of the United Nations and human rights and decolonization, largely offer declension narratives in which liberal democratic visions of self-determination among the first generation of post-independence leaders in the 1950s gave way to the organized hypocrisy of authoritarian states a decade later, or to the Pandora's box of secessionist movements and state fragmentation, either in the 1970s or, or for political scientists uh, working after the Cold War in the 1990s and the early 2000s. I would offer, however, that we need to treat self-determination claims more empathetically, if not sympathetically, as an authentic expression of what I would characterize as the third world's human rights project during the Cold War. And I would argue that we should look at self-determination not just as a set of instrumental claims or contested legal norms, but as a historically contingent and contested space for thinking about sovereignty and human rights during the Cold War, one which leads us in very different directions than the largely liberal European-oriented literature that most of us have seen in recent years. Now, debates about self-determination in the post-war period raised a series of seemingly unanswerable questions. Among them, was self-determination a human right or just a general principle? If so, who could claim it? Did it implicate economic as well as political independence? Did it encompass the right to internal democratic participation? Did it apply only to colonial or non-self-governing territories? Or did it also apply to national groups seeking to secede from recognized states? The Atlantic Charter in 1941, as well as Japan's conquest of Southeast Asia a few years before, had helped to reinsert these questions into international relations. More than two decades after the Wilsonian moment, when Woodrow Wilson and Vladimir Lenin had first sort of launched these ideas into international politics in very interesting ways, and about which Erez Manella has so effectively written. The debates leading up to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights did not in any way resolve these questions, because the Universal Declaration excluded self-determination as a human right. This is an important reason, uh, Samuel Moyne has argued in his very important recent book, The Last Utopia, why anti-colonial movements seized on self-determination and national liberation rather than human rights as the ideological framework for their anti-colonial struggles. Beginning in the early 1950s, however, non-Western states and anti-colonial movements sought to institutionalize the status of self-determination in the UN human rights machinery. Working through the Human Rights Commission and the General Assembly's Third Committee, the Social Humanitarian and Cultural Committee, and the Fourth Committee, otherwise known as the Decolonization Committee. And this is a, a place where I depart from Samuel Moyne uh, in his analysis, because I think that the way he frames this question and the way he, he analyzes the anti-colonial movements really doesn't give us an explanation as to why anti-colonial movements who largely rejected human rights discourse and a human rights framework for, for justifying national liberation struggles would have nevertheless worked so diligently to try and embed self-determination as a human right within the UN framework. In 1960, and this is probably familiar history for a lot of us, a coalition of African and Asian states in the General Assembly secured passage of the landmark resolution on the granting of independence to colonial countries and peoples. It's always hard to 
to, to actually say uh, these UN declarations in one breath because so many of them are sort of Faulknerian in their, in their uh, grammatical complexity. The Declaration firmly established self-determination as, quote, the legal foundation for the establishment of the sovereign state from the colonial territory. And it rejected arguments about primitivism and backwardness as a basis for continued colonial rule, although countries of all ideological and political stripes would continue to make such arguments. Five years later, the UN adopted the legally binding International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, which for the first time linked apartheid with decolonization and self-determination and breached an opening in the wall of state sovereignty through which a generation of human rights NGOs would later enter. The following year, culminating a decade of negotiations at the UN General Assembly, the GA adopted the International Covenants on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. Article one of each covenant begins with the famous phrase that, quote, all peoples have the right to self-determination. By virtue of that right, they may freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social, and cultural development. Now, while the General Assembly and its newly independent members voted overwhelmingly in favor of both covenants, many Western and European states, unsurprisingly, did not. The United Kingdom, for one, viewed Article I as, quote, one of the most problematical articles in the covenant and deeply threatening to the future status of its non-self-governing and trust territories, forgetting about its colonial territories entirely. Britain, like most colonial powers, still held the position that rights inhered in individuals and not collectively identified as peoples, whatever they meant, that self-determination was a principle and not a right, and that it imposed no legal obligation on states. It was aspirational rather than than actionable. Surveying the radically changed political landscape of the late 1960s, however, the British Foreign Ministry had changed its tune. The time has come when British officials suggested that we have more to gain than to lose from conceding the existence of some form of the right to self-determination." Perhaps more importantly, London sensed that recognition of a so-called right to self-determination would not impose substantive new burdens on it or what one historian has called the perplexed proprietors of tiny territories, all of which would likely remain or retain close trade, political, and security ties to the metropole even after they became independent. Shortly after approving the Human Rights Covenants, the General Assembly began considering the famous 1970 Declaration on the Principles of International Law and Friendly Relations Between States. The 1970 Declaration marked a turning point in the evolution of human rights uh, law as well as self-determination claims. While acknowledging, quote, the principle of equal rights and self-determination of peoples, end quote, the Declaration expanded the definition of self-determination from an act of colonial emancipation to a process linked to representative government. This opened up a whole new realm of, of conflict and contestation for, for uh, activists who began equally applying this logic to South Africa under apartheid and to the states of Eastern Europe living under Soviet domination, a tactic that would be adopted a few years later by many of the groups linked to the CSCE or Helsinki rights process. This declaration also stated that self-determination could take forms other than independence, including any arrangement freely arrived at by the peoples under colonial rule. 
This was a useful formulation for the US, France, Britain, and other countries, and the variety of arrangements that they envisioned for non-self-governing and trust territories, places such as Micronesia, Guam, the British Virgin Islands, French Polynesia, or other small and island states that lay on the boundary of the international system and helped to demarcate the, the sort of outer limits of what self-determination could encompass. Of course, when convenient, the Soviet Union would resort to similar intellectual gymnastics to justify its presence in Eastern Europe and its position on the nationalities question within the Soviet Union itself. Now, over the next few years, newly independent and socialist states advanced a blizzard of initiatives within the UN system that further solidified the link between anti-colonialism, self-determination, and human rights. And these aren't just debates taking place at the UN General Assembly. Of course, they're linked to ongoing national liberation struggles in countless countries, and they're very much grounded in the lived day-to-day -day experience of movements and peoples who are seeking independence from colonial rule and otherwise seeking to carve out uh, their place in a post-colonial world. Much of this activity was focused on the Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories and on southern Africa and the tactics of the alphabet soup of guerrilla movements fighting against occupation, colonial, or racist rule all of which served to radicalize debate over the, over the very meaning of human rights at the UN General Assembly. A succession of disputes within a variety of UN committees in the early 1970s reveals a terrain of debate over the meaning and definition of human rights which was almost wholly alien to liberal sensibilities, especially those of Western states and human rights NGOs who for principled or practical reasons focused their attention almost entirely and exclusively on those victims of human rights abuses in other countries who forswore violence as a means of social change. But of course, as we know, this was a minority of those movements seeking liberation from European colonial rule. And so the question that people like Nelson Mandela, of course, famously raised was whether or not a movement uh, could be both a human rights movement and a national liberation struggle, and what position uh, both the UN and its constituent members, as well as those who supported it or empathize with it in the West, ought to take towards it. The practical question was whether the UN could or would acknowledge that if self-determination was indeed a fundamental human right, that people living under colonial domination have the right to use any means at their disposal, including armed struggle, in order to achieve it. Without armed struggle, Franz Fanon famously argued in The Wretched of the Earth, liberal nationalist parties in the colonial areas were left with little more than, quote, a string of philosophical political dissertations on the themes of the rights of people to self-determination, end quote. The UN Decolonization Committee, now dominated by newly independent African and Asian states, suggested that the answer was yes. It urged member states in a declaration marking the passage of the 1960 decolonization resolution to offer all possible support for liberation movements in South Africa, southern Rhodesia, Namibia, the Portuguese territories, and Palestine, including, and I'm quoting, condoning the use of violence. Now this is pretty dangerous stuff. American and British officials expressed their frustration with, quote, the extreme and unworkable measures proposed by the committee, and frustration with the direction of the decolonization committee led to the withdrawal of the US and Britain from the committee altogether in 1971. Canada, France, Iran, Nigeria, and Israel 
also firmly rejected the committee's endorsement of armed struggle and feared establishing what they called a dangerous doctrine that anything goes, such as attempted secession by Kurds or Biafrans or plane hijackings by Palestinians so long as the justification was self-determination. These disputes climaxed in 1975 when the UN General Assembly's Third Committee debated a resolution on the universal realization of the right of peoples to self-determination and the speedy granting of independence to colonial countries. Clearly, English majors were not in charge of writing the titles of these resolutions. A year earlier, UN Secretary General Kurt Waldheim had appointed a special rapporteur to investigate progress by member states in implementing UN resolutions relating to the right of peoples under alien and colonial domination to self-determination. While the colonial powers uh, generally refused to even reply to the Secretary General's request, growing international pressure led them to implement a whole range of consultations and referendums to legitimize their continued relationship with non-self-governing and trust territories, and in some cases to pave the way for independence. Now, not all countries sort of went in this direction. So, of course, places like Diego Garcia, to give one example, were just handed over to the U.S. Uh, for use as an Air Force base. And others had an uneasy relationship uh, with the former colonial powers uh, for, for years or even decades. But these years did mark a turning point of sorts. They witnessed the final collapse of Portuguese colonialism, the collapse of Saigon, or the fall of Saigon, and the 1975 signing of the Helsinki Final Act. Between 1974 and 1976, Cape Verde, the Comoros, Sao Tome and Principe, Mozambique, Angola, Grenada, Samoa, the Seychelles, Suriname, Papua New Guinea, and Guinea-Bissau joined the United Nations, the last burst of new states until the end of the Cold War and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. The achievement of formal self-determination by the vast majority of the world's peoples formally formerly living under colonial rule, with significant exceptions in southern Africa and Palestine, also marked a turning point in the global history of human rights. It was precisely in those places where self-determination had already triumphed, or where it had been acknowledged by the great powers, that liberal human rights could now be reconciled with self-determination. The State Department acknowledged as much when UN Ambassador Daniel Patrick Moynihan submitted to the UN's Third Committee a draft resolution appealing for the release of all political prisoners, at least all that the US recognizes political prisoners, excluding people uh, such as Nelson Mandela. The resolution, drafted with US congressional human rights activist, Representative Donald Frazier, a Democrat from Minnesota, pointed to the Helsinki Final Act as, quote, concluding an era of political strife and international tension in Europe, and noted the great progress achieved and, quote, ensuring the right of self-determination for peoples everywhere. Now, however, that, quote, a new era of cooperation and political amity between nations is emerging, this lessening of international tensions makes derogation by states of the rights of peoples to exercise their human rights even more unjustifiable. One political scientist argued that the United States would not be able to focus on human rights, what she termed individual self-determination, until it had severed the false connection between human rights and national or collective self-determination. Most newly independent states, however, as we all know, having achieved what they called the first right of self-determination, hoped to wall themselves off from the prying eyes of those in the international community who would turn their gaze from the collective rights of liberation movements to the individual rights of their citizens. 
The end of empire, however, would lead not to a tapering, but to a continued expansion of self-determination claims. And I wanted to point, um, because I'm starting to learn the, the beauty of things like Google Ngram, uh, what happens with, with the, the kinds of references which are being made to self-determination in sort of English literature uh, in this period. And we see that there's sort of a burst in 1919, 1920, another burst uh, in the mid-1940s, and then really a sort of dip in the use of self-determination in English language literature, books, journals, uh, political science uh, literature, and the like. And then a dramatic spike beginning in the late 60s and early 70s that really continues through the end of the Cold War and into the 2000s. Now, <clears throat> the end of empire would lead not to a tapering, but to a dramatic expansion of these claims. And it's suggestive, I think, that self-determination had become a framework, a sort of, a sort of discourse uh, that, that encompassed a whole range of, of social justice struggles and that took on a vastly expanded meaning uh, on the part of those who were articulating or deploying such claims. And I want to talk about a couple of these claims now. In the views of many, this proliferation of self-determination claims was potentially dangerous stuff. And various kinds of self-determination claims and movements were firmly rejected. Those involving secession, those made by peoples deemed too primitive or backward to merit self-government, and those invoking an expansive conception of economic sovereignty. And I first want to talk about secession. While the US and its European allies, China and the Soviet Union and the nations of the post-colonial world often violently disagreed on the nature and scope of self-determination as a human right, on the question of secession, there was something approaching genuine consensus. Even as the UN General Assembly moved to declare colonialism a crime and enshrine self-determination as a fundamental human right, member states made clear that the territorial integrity of new nations was inviolate and that the right to self-determination did not apply to racial, cultural, or ethnic groups within a colony. The UN, with African members in the lead, repeatedly condemned attempts by secessionist movements to redraw the borders of often fragile multi-ethnic states, and it explicitly or tacitly authorized the Congo, Nigeria, and other nations threatened by secessionist movements to employ staggering levels of violence in order to preserve their territorial integrity. Now, what's interesting is that Virtually no one uh, referred to the, the, the mass killings that accompanied these kinds of secessionist movements as being grounded in human rights claims. Rather, they were treated as humanitarian catastrophes. Most governments scrupulously avoided even using the term human rights when describing secessionist movements or human rights abuses to describe the tactics used to suppress them, even when they approached genocidal levels, as was the case in uh, the secession of Bangladesh. Instead, Western governments describe the situations in both Biafra and Bangladesh as mere humanitarian crises demanding relief, rather than human rights crises demanding political response or even international intervention. Bangladesh, however, was the exception that proved the rule. Even as the sheer scale of the suffering there raised a profound question of whether or not human rights abuses on a sufficiently massive level could justify the dissolution of a sovereign state. For most countries and most of the international community, the answer remained no. Consensus, however, was not absolute. Julius Nier's government in Tanzania offered recognition to the Republic of Biafra in 1968, and the Soviet Union, for its own geopolitical reasons, sided with India over Pakistan on the question of self-determination for Bangladesh. 
Soviet leaders matched their Western counterparts in basing their support for self-determination claims and movements uh, as a human right on geopolitical rather than principled grounds, hailing the principle when it served their needs and interests and denouncing it when it did not, such as in Eastern Europe. Moscow's response to the conflict between Somalia and Ethiopia in the late 1970s was more typical. Upon coming to power in Somalia in 1974, Somali President Siab Bar began laying claim to Ethiopia's Ogaden territory, home to a substantial Somali minority, as well as offering support to Eritrean separatists. <clears throat> Bar told Soviet officials in Mogadishu that Ethiopia's leader, uh, Mengistu Haile uh, Mariam, quote, does not abide by Leninist principles on the nationalities issue, meaning self-determination of peoples as a foundation of international law. In 1977, Somalia launched a disastrous war to try and retake the Ogaden, only to be stymied by a massive Cuban and Soviet military campaign in support of Mengistu. Soviet analysts denounced Bar and other Somali officials for, quote, using as a cover demagogic declarations about the rights of nations to self-determination to mask Somalia's irredentist ambitions. They were no more supportive of Eritrean efforts and made clear to Eritrean leaders that self-determination could only take place within the framework of a unified Ethiopian state. It is especially necessary, R.A. Ulanovsky of the CPSU Central Committee told his East German counterpart, to convince the Eritrean liberation movement that, quote, self-determination for the Eritrean people will be achieved within the framework of an Ethiopian state, end quote. Now, throughout the 19, or, or though, the 1960 decolonization declaration specifically renounced assertions of primitivism and backwardness as justifications for continued colonial rule, both Western and non-Western states continued to use these as a basis for rejecting self-determination claims by those peoples deemed too weak, too small, too underdeveloped, or too primitive to merit self-government. The former Dutch territory of West New Guinea, later known as West Irian or West Papua, provided an early template. Indonesia claimed <coughs> West Papua as part of the former Dutch East Indies, and President Sukarno threatened war with the Netherlands in order to force President John F. Kennedy to broker an agreement in 1962 that turned over the territory to Indonesia pending a UN-sponsored act of self-determination in 1969. Indonesia organized the so-called Act of Free Choice under UN auspices uh, in 1969, leaving nothing to chance in what is now widely regarded as a fraudulent process. Indonesian, US, and Australian, and UN officials, however, almost uniformly agreed that the Papuans were too tribal, primitive, and backwards to merit self-government, claims that were buttressed by a generation of anthropological scholarship which valorized and romanticized Papuan primitivism as something that had to be preserved in order to shelter the Papuans from destruction uh, by, by the growing connections they had with international society. As the U.S. Ambassador to Indonesia, Marshall Green, put it, quote, we are dealing here with essentially Stone Age illiterate tribal groups. And free elections among groups such as this would be more of a farce than any rigged mechanism that Indonesia could devise. Similar considerations underlay Western support for Indonesia's invasion and occupation of the Portuguese territory of East Timor in 1975. Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs argued in 1974 that although it had the right to self-determination, Portuguese Timor is not at present a viable economic entity and would have no capability in the short term to handle a self-governing or independent status. Indonesian President Suharto agreed. 
telling U.S. President Gerald Ford a few months later that the Portuguese colony would, quote, hardly be viable, and that the only way to decolonize was to integrate Timor into Indonesia. The European power's stance on East Timor proved strikingly similar to that regarding Moroccan and Mauritanian takeover of the Spanish Sahara in December of 1975. Two months earlier, the International Court of Justice had ruled that partition and annexation of the territory by the two countries violated the freely expressed will of the peoples there for independence and self-determination. While repeatedly affirming Western Sahara's right to self-determination, however, the U.S., France, the United Kingdom, and other European powers expressed their de facto support for Morocco and Mauritania's partition of the territory, viewing it as too sparsely populated and too primitive to become anything but the object of regional and potentially global rivalry. Tunisian President Habib Bourkiba, speaking to the French newspaper Le Monde, put it bluntly, self-determination for 40,000 nomads, he asked, let's not exaggerate. The Organization for African Unity was similarly split on whether or not to support Western Sahara's right to self-determination, just as the non-aligned movement was split on the question of Western Sahara and East Timor. Unable to come to a resolution of either conflict, which squared their support for self-determination in principle with the human rights abuses that its denial produced for those peoples. Now, of all the self-determination claims made by the nations of the so-called Global South in the 1970s, Perhaps none rankled the sensitivities of Western governments and political scientists than those that linked self-determination as a human right to the notion of economic sovereignty. This issue, of course, was central to the hopes of post-colonial states uh, emerging from colonialism or dominated by foreign firms for autonomous development that would lead to their integration with the world economy on fairer terms. This meant, first and foremost, challenging the continued control of their economies by the former colonial powers, by foreign firms, or by multilateral institutions, as well as a global trading and legal system that favored the needs of advanced industrial economies over those dependent upon producing primary products for export. Western governments and the corporations that resided within them, however, just as regularly rejected the notion that self-determination implied the right to control one's own natural resources to nationalize foreign firms, or to otherwise opt out of the liberal economic order established at Bretton Woods in 1944. Commenting in 1952 on Iran's nationalization of the Anglo-Iranian oil company, petroleum consultant Walter Levy, probably the, the most prominent oil consultant uh, in the entire world at the time, questioned, and I'm quoting, whether in a situation where a vital power position of the U.S. is at stake, we can afford to apply fully the normal and traditional laws of sovereign self-determination to the control of underdeveloped countries over the oil in their soil. Which is a more sort of scholarly way of, of asking, how did our oil get under their soil? <laughs> <coughs> While often not treated as such by historians, governments, and political movements, uh, excuse me, while not often treated as such by historians, Governments and political movements in the so-called Global South increasingly used a language of human rights to assert their demands for economic self-determination, demands that made their way into debates at multilateral forums as well, more importantly, into national laws challenging the prerogatives of foreign investors. Both the 1960 Declaration on Decolonization and the 1966 Human Rights Covenants expressly assert the rights of states emerging from colonialism to, quote, freely determine their political status 
and to freely pursue their economic, social, and cultural development. But this is precisely the reason why the Lyndon Johnson administration justified rejecting the UN covenants, arguing that, that Article 1, uh, uh, Section 2, which stated that, quote, all peoples may for their own ends freely dispose of their natural wealth and resources without prejudice, did not provide for the prompt, adequate, and effective compensation that Western governments demanded in the case of the nationalization of foreign firms. Western political scientists writing about self-determination in the late 1960s were nearly hysterical on this point. They fretted about the implications of acknowledging a right to economic self-determination and argued, as one put it, that, quote, the problem would be simpler if self-determination had never been called a right and if the limits of its application had been more clearly specified from the first. And it suggested that most of the, the literature about self-determination in this period uh, is overwhelmingly pessimistic. Uh, and is overwhelmingly sort of anxious and even frightened about the implications of acknowledging this right uh, in any sort of expansive term. One can just gaze at the titles of many of the books and articles which refer to the evil of self-determination. Uh, self-determination is a good idea badly applied. Self-determination as a steel trap and various other uh, optimistic uh, pronouncements. But once unleashed, such formulations were hard to put back in the bottle. And they were seized upon by a whole range of state and non-state actors, from post-colonial regimes in Africa to African-American and Native American groups in the United States, including black nationalists such as Malcolm X uh, and many others who called for economic self-determination for African-American communities, even after the passage of the landmark civil rights legislation of the mid-1960s. Now, even as they grudgingly moved toward accepting some notion of self-determination as a human right, Colonial and former colonial powers sought to limit its application to paths that would not impinge on their economic prerogatives. In other words, they argued that self-determination did not imply a full economic sovereignty. Following passage of the Human Rights Covenants, for example, Australia began considering self-determination and independence for the tiny island territory of Nauru, one of Canberra's few non-self-governing territories. In discussions with the British Colonial Office, Australian officials noted that the only barrier to immediate independence for Nauru was concern about who would control the island's rich phosphate deposits, upon which Australia largely depended. They concluded that, quote, the balance of advantage would be to give Nauru independence, they put this in scare quotes, in 1968, as part of a package deal uh, in which Nauruans would sign a phosphate agreement guaranteeing continued supply of phosphate at reasonable prices. Otherwise, they continued, title of phosphate rights and nominal control of the industry would pass into the hands of the Nauruans themselves. Similar concerns informed official Australian discussions in 1975 about the transfer of independence to Papua New Guinea with its extraordinarily rich copper and gold deposits. And the same concern underlay uh, independence for Western Sahara, for East Timor, and many other places that were also deemed sort of too small, too backwards, and too primitive for self-government. But this is where it gets interesting. Latin American states, which voted reliably with the US in international forums on the question of armed struggle and self-determination, were among the most vociferous in asserting economic self-determination as a human right. And it suggests the need to pursue a sort of regional approach to thinking about these questions, because Latin America's, uh, or Latin American conceptions of self-determination were almost uh, entirely directed at the United States and at the repeated political and military intervention uh, that they 
that they experience rather than the colonial history that inform many of these same struggles in places like Africa and Southeast Asia. They were most vociferous in asserting these, these claims, especially when it came to constraining or restraining the prerogatives of transnational corporations. So Chile's foreign minister under Salvador Allende, for example, told the UN Human Rights Commission in March of 1973 that, quote, third world countries cannot give all human rights because they are confined by poverty, dependency, and exploitation. A new concept of self-determination was needed, she added, which would comprehend political, economic, and social aspects and account for the role of multinational corporations which, quote, violate self-determination by penetrating societies and subjugating peoples. Now notice that this isn't the, the sort of Asian human rights debate which became so prominent in the 1990s, in which governments such as Singapore and Indonesia argued that, that these countries had, had sort of authoritarian histories and cultural tendencies which prevented them from being able to fully apply Western liberal notions of human rights to their peoples. These were conceptions of, of human rights collectively construed, uh, which were very, very different in nature and I think have to be treated in a different manner. East Germany's ambassador to the UN agreed, stating that, quote, political liberation and economic liberation are closely related. It is high time to examine their detrimental effects of the operations of transnational monopolies on the realization of human rights and to take national and international measures for that purpose. In the midst of Security Council discussions over the Panama Canal Treaty, for example, Panama's delegation to the UN submitted a draft resolution on permanent sovereignty over natural resources. The resolution was later adopted by the Latin American Foreign Ministers Conference in Bogota, Colombia, which declared that any effort to pressure member states over the disposition of their natural resources violated UN principles of self-determination and non-interference in the internal affairs of states. The following March, in a special session of the Economic and Social Council, the Group of 77, led by Iran, issued the landmark Declaration of Principles for the Establishment of a New International Economic Order. The NIAO uh, aimed to accelerate the development of poor countries and close the widening gap between them and the industrialized world. The NIAO represented sort of the high tide of efforts by the non-aligned movement and the Group of 77 to use the UN machinery and other uh, transnational frameworks to build political solidarity and consensus around a restructuring of international economic relations, prompting lots of hand-wringing in Washington, London, and other capitals over how to identify and exploit differences among non-aligned movement and G77 members so as to fracture their unity on this question. <clears throat> over the course of the next year, the foreign ministers of the non-aligned movement meeting in Lima, Peru in August of 1974 recommended a program of action to rein in the activities of multinational corporations which, quote, violated human rights and the self-determination of peoples, end quote. After more than two years of negotiations dating back to 1973, the UNGA in December of 74 issued a draft charter on economic rights and duties of states which rooted human rights in equal development, self-determination, and the creation of a new international economic order. In 1975, rather, witnessed a flurry of discussions and declarations all over the world, building on and referencing the famous Frank Church Committee hearings on multinational corporations and U.S. foreign policy on the need to rein in the power of multinational corporations, especially those investing in and indirectly working to support racist regimes in Rhodesia and South Africa that violated the rights of their citizens to internal self-determination. 
Now, non-aligned movement solidarity on the creation of an NIEO and on many other issues was always fragile. And it masked deep economic and political differences among member states, which emerged most starkly in the wake of the oil price hikes of the 1970s and the massive wealth transfers from non-oil producing states to oil producing states that these oil shocks uh, produced. But the grounding of calls for an NIEO in terms of human rights and self-determination marks a striking repudiation of Western discourses of individual human rights, which historians have barely begun to acknowledge, much less write about. Now, the global human rights movement, about which historians have recently spilled so much ink, was entirely absent from such debates, with one exception. Amnesty International, for the first 20 years of its existence, focused exclusively on prisoners of conscience, torture survivors, and the death penalty, in essence rejecting both the content and implications of the UN Human Rights Covenants and the myriad declarations and recommendations concerning political and economic self-determination as a human right. Organizationally, Amnesty and others shied away from human rights abuses stemming from war, secession crises, and cross-border invasions, such as Indonesia's attack on East Timor, where the overwhelming bulk of abuses stem from the denial of self-determination by the occupying or invading power. Amnesty International's International Secretariat, in a directive to groups around the world working on East Timor and Indonesia, reminded them that, quote, while governments may regard the human rights situation in East Timor as having a bearing on their stand on the issue of self-determination, Amnesty International does not urge governments to take any particular position on this issue. On economic questions, Amnesty was wholly silent. Now, it is worth contrasting Amnesty International with the International League for Human Rights, which was founded in the United States in 1942 and which was committed to anti-colonial self-determination as a human right within the UN framework. The League submitted petitions to the Fourth Committee in the late 1970s and 1980s on Western Sahara, East Timor, and many other places, framing East Timor's case in precisely these terms. Many solidarity groups, as opposed to human rights organizations, focusing on East Timor, Biafra, and other occupied territories made the same connection, linking human rights abuses to the denial of self-determination. And they urged their governments to do so as well. In doing so, they exposed a vast gulf between differing visions of NGO human rights politics that historians have thus far accorded little attention. In conclusion, I would argue that the human rights history of the period looks quite different if refracted through the lens of self-determination rather than civil or political rights. And that doing so shifts our gaze and the focus of our gaze from Latin America and the advanced industrial states of Europe to Africa, the Middle East, and Southern Asia. And from Western parliaments and NGO boardrooms to multilateral institutions and the diplomacy of the non-aligned movement, the G77, and indigenous movements around the world. Viewing self-determination as a phenomenon of international history, to give just one example, helps us to reconsider dynamics otherwise analyzed within the frame of the nation state, such as the remarkable upsurge of Native American activism in the US during the 1960s, which was grounded in calls for, quote, self-determination without termination of the tribal system, which had governed Native American federal relations since the 1920s. After more than a decade of activism on the part of a whole range of Native American movements that really moved far beyond the American Indian movement about which most people know the most, Congress in 1975 passed the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act, 
which provided a new framework of relations with the federal government, which would confer upon Native American tribes increased economic, religious, and cultural autonomy. And this movement in the US was, was paralleled by a similar upsurge in indigenous people's activism in Canada, in Australia, and in many other parts of the world, which I have a hunch, although I haven't done the research to, to prove this, uh, to really prove this effectively yet, I have a hunch that these movements were indeed linked, uh, not just through international fora of indigenous and, un and unrecognized peoples, but also through transnational uh, forms of activism and solidarity, which allowed them to, to effectively deploy self-determination claims and to share tactics and strategies uh, in ways that really have not been accorded very much acknowledgement at all by historians or political scientists who've written about uh, indigenous rights movements almost wholly within the framework of either the UN or uh, national struggles uh, in isolation. I've attempted to do more, no more here than survey some of the myriad ways in which states and movements deploy claims to self-determination as a human right. And some of the contested, even contradictory meanings accorded self-determination on all sides of east-west and north-south divides. There are many issues such as the Palestinian struggle for self-determination and the Helsinki process that I've totally ignored or, or really glossed over that I will hopefully deal with in some depth in my forthcoming book. But as this brief tour hopefully makes clear, there was no single discourse of self-determination, any more so than there was a single discourse of human rights. Rather, like other contested human rights norms, the meaning of self-determination was the resultant of political, ideological, and sometimes even military conflict, with a multiplicity of actors seeking to enlarge or constrain its meaning to suit their own purposes. This initial foray has raised far more questions than it can answer. Among them, was the ideological commitment of third world states and movements to self-determination genuine, or was it merely a discourse to be appropriated for instrumental purposes? Did self-determination claim substantively rather than merely rhetorically shape struggles for decolonization, human rights, and self-rule in the post-1945 period, or did it merely reflect them? My research does not yet enable me to provide clear answers to these questions, but it does suggest that a more critical and robust history of human rights in the post-war era would do well to take its cues from the priorities and initiatives of states, movements, and activists in the global south. It also suggests that we need to develop a research agenda which would make it possible to more fully recover their sometimes cacophonous voices rather than treating them merely as the false echo of their liberal imperial precursors in the US and Western Europe. So thank you very much. I'm happy to take questions, complaints. Um, sure, sure, I'll start, start here and just move around the room. Yeah, and if you could tell me who you are so I, so I sort of have a, a way to put names of faces. Yeah. International wars? International wars are yeah. the big evil. Uh, are a problem because people try to take territory. So mm -hmm. therefore what we'll do is divide the whole world up into little chunks of countries and say that's it. You cannot change the borders either by succession or by could it be by invasion uh, forever. Uh, except by peaceful means. And so that was that was designed to solve that. World War II came and if anything underlying that, because obviously 
idea was to stop international war, even if the other evils were still there, which uh, would happen. And since World War II, there's been no case. There's only one case in which a United Nations member has taken over another United Nations member mm -hmm. and tried to incorporate it in. That was with Saddam Hussein taking over Kuwait. So it's been a total success in some sense, except that it doesn't deal with the other evil, which is implied in self-determination. We, we don't care how disgusting the government Except for the Congo, of course, in the early 2000s. Um, you know, <clears throat> I'm just starting on this project and still starting to dig into archives and, and read very widely. So it's very possible that you're totally right. And this is really about, about international wars and the Those years are. Yeah, of years or decade long sort of after effects of, of these wars on international politics. Um, but I would wager that. that that in many ways that, that we can't apply a sort of single definition, a single meaning uh, to self-determination that, that sort of dates from World War I uh, and that, that takes us through the post-war period. And, and Eric Weitz, in a very important article, has, has made the case uh, that right after World War I, you know, human rights uh, was very closely linked to the forced population removals that accompanied the, the collapse of the Habsburg and Ottoman empires and the, the creation of ethnically homogenous uh, states out of the remnants of those empires was a sort of foundation for 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 you know for resurrecting or or preserving the Westphalian state system after World War One. Of course, after World War Two, no one's really thinking about trying to create ethnically homogeneous states or trying to figure out how to preserve ethnically heterogeneous states uh, from from splintering into their constituent parts. Um, and so, you know, the the ways in which people are thinking about decolonization and human rights. Uh, in 1919, of course, is very different than the way they're thinking about it in 1949 or 59 or 69. And in the same way, I would argue that we need to acknowledge the way that, that self-determination claims and that the norms that are slowly being established by movements that are trying to instantiate self-determination into customary and, and uh, de jure international law are reshaping what self-determination means. Uh, so that so that the definition of what self-determination can and ought to encompass is very different in the 1980s than it was in, say, the 1940s, when it really was considered really just about European decolonization. And by the 1980s, we have we have a much sort of thicker understanding of what self-determination can encompass, uh, which is in part informed by the lived experience of countless movements and states and and peoples which have deployed such claims, as well as the responses of the international community to such claims. Um, that said, uh, you may very well be right that, that, that really this is about, about the meaning of international order and sovereignty. And I'm, and I'm fairly confident that, that, that I will end up discovering that, that preserving a certain understanding of the international state system uh, lay at the heart of established government's rejection of expansive conceptions of self-determination. 
But I'm hoping to go far beyond that and to look at the ways in which people are deploying self-determination claims uh, in, in non-state fashions to encompass religious and linguistic and cultural sovereignty in ways that really didn't have anything to do with the creation of new states, but rather attempts to preserve or enlarge uh, conceptions of self-rule self uh, within the confines of already existing nation states. So does that answer your question? Yeah, well, it's yeah. basically you have an idea created for one reason and then people manipulate it later yeah. for other ones. Yeah, yes. Um, I've talked to Sam about this because I think we largely agree, um, and I'd say I'd say two things. One, one that 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 Sam is basically right on on the sort of genealogy question. It's it's simply because in, in his book he's arguing that the human rights movement is a very recent phenomenon, uh, but that human rights has this genealogy that that does stretch quite far back. Although he doesn't accept the arguments of Lynn Hunt and others uh, about sort of how far back and when human rights as in its recognizable modern form sort of emerges. But I think that, that he's largely got this sort of intellectual genealogical argument right. And I'm not an intellectual historian, so, so and I'm more interested in, in the, way that, the way that people are sort of discussing these ideas behind closed doors and not sort of necessarily sort of in print, <clears throat> and how conceptions of self-determination are actually shaping state policies uh, towards other movements and, and the claims that are being made on, on their behalf. Um, but there are others who have started trying to write about this. Eric Weitz uh, is writing a, a sort of book on human rights and population removals and movements in the 20th century, arguing that the two are intertwined and we can't have one without the other uh, because they're, they're sort of dialectically linked. And he, uh, in a paper he presented at Princeton this year, <clears throat> tried to give a sort of intellectual genealogy of self-determination, which also sort of stretched it back to the 19th century uh, and, and to Kant and Nietzsche and others who largely framed it in, in philosophical terms that focused on, on, on sort of the governance of the will uh, and the passions and, and viewing it largely in, in, if not psychological terms, in terms that would be recognizable to, to late 20th century psychologists who resurrect sort of self-determination and psychological practice in the U.S. in the 1970s and link it back to 19th century notions of, of self-governance. Um, and White's argument is, is, is that 
self-determination was always really about individual self-determination, and that the third world basically hijacked it uh, and, and, and sort of screwed things up. And, and when it did so, it, it severed the connection between individual rights and collective rights and tried to sort of split them in the same way that the US and the Soviets and others tried to split the covenants in 1948, and that everyone's dealing with the nasty aftermath of this sort of, of this shotgun divorce. Um, and I think that, that, <clears throat> that there is something to that argument, but I think it's too much of a European-centered argument. And it argues that self-determination meant something, something original and sort of better in its European form, and that once it gets sort of appropriated by all of these movements in the so-called uh, global south, uh, that, that it no longer has an authentic meaning, and therefore it should be criticized and, and construed as something dangerous to be hopefully sort of constrained within, within more appropriate bounds. Uh, and I just don't accept that argument. And I think that, that we, need to, uh, we need to figure out ways of, of grappling empathetically with the kinds of claims that are being deployed by, by these movements and peoples and, and take them at face value uh, as genuine expressions, if not an expressions that have to be critically unpacked of, of how national liberation movements and various peoples and collectivities in various parts of the world understood self-determination as a human right. Um, I think that the historians still have a hard time dealing with, with this whole phenomenon of these sort of revolutionary states in the 60s and 70s. And we tend to, to take their claims as, as their claims and, and arguments about human rights as being either ideological sort of nonsense or being just rank hypocrisy because of the violence and abuses which accompanied their creation and their consolidations of power. Um, and I certainly acknowledge all of that, uh, but I think that we have to move beyond sort of mere denunciation and, and try and achieve some sort of empathetic understanding uh, that, that, that takes what I would call third worldist conceptions of human rights as being morally and politically co-equal uh, with, with European and, and Western conceptions and not simply treat one as, as being uh, in some way inferior to the other, which is I think the position that a lot of the literature on human rights, especially the history of human rights, takes as the unacknowledged sort of starting position. And I think that that's something that's, that's potentially very dangerous. So, yeah. I enjoyed your talk. Um, presupposing that there's three levels of inquiry, one being description, mm -hmm. two being analysis, and three being evaluation. Mm -hmm. The first two, description and analysis, I, I think you've done a good job I'd like to know more about how you want to engage that higher level of inquiry, namely in evaluation. Can you see of yourself, uh, I know you say that the, the definition is contested, but it seems like it's somewhat of a, you know, a, you know a, what can argue, a cop-out. Can you formulate a definition of uh, self-determination that you would be willing to defend? That's not easy to find counter examples to, uh, for example, you said that we should be empathetic to self-determination um, in third world nations. Mm -hmm. uh, but if one were to re apply that retrospectively to say the American South during the Civil War, one may not want to apply that same empathy, I don't know. But how, how are you going to deal with this this higher level? Or are you just going to just focus the, the book um, on um, 
and I'd like to think that I'm going to engage in sort of higher level analysis in the book, but um, I think that I think that I want to I want to move away. I want to resist the temptation to, to to come up with a definition of self determination and then and then look at at, at deviation from the norm uh, because because there because what it means in 1941 is 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 both literally and and legally very different than what it means in say 1980. Um, I'm more interested in, in, in sort of charting its descent through international politics and viewing it as a, as a sort of window for understanding sort of changing conceptions of human rights and sovereignty uh, that, that reflect changes in the international system more generally. Uh, economic changes, political changes, cultural changes, which are, which are helping to constitute the terrain on which movements and peoples are deploying self-determination claims at various moments in time. And I think that, that for example, one can't, one can't understand the, the ways in which people are thinking about self-determination and deploying self-determination claims in the 1970s without understanding the transformations in the global economy that are taking place uh, with the collapse of the Bretton Woods system, with the oil shocks, with these sort of globalizing fears about, about the power of transnational corporations. You know that are that are constituting the sort of soil within which people are are generating these claims. Um, so, so and maybe I'm maybe this is a cop out to say that I'm not going to provide a sort of firm definition because I also want this to be something of an intellectual history of the ways in which social scientists and these are overwhelmingly Western social scientists have have grappled with the notion of self determination uh, in ways that reflect their own discomfort uh, with with its appropriation by by sort of non-Western actors. Um, I will say that, that over the course of the post-war period, that, that international society grows ever more adept at defining self-determination in ways that move beyond sort of earlier understanding. So that in the early post-war period, most people thought about self-determination as really meaning colonial independence, creation of a nation state out of the remnants of a former colonial empire. By the 1970s, and especially moving into the 80s, and, and especially in the 1990s, uh, there's a reservoir of experience and practice that, 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 that states and international institutions, and, and there's consultants that are helping to negotiate these sorts of things that are enabling governments to adjudicate self-determination claims using a much wider sort of range of tools uh, and, and, and sort of uh, policies uh, than was the case in, say, the 1940s. So this is something that the international law literature and the political science literature is very strong on, is in describing the whole range of possible outcomes to self-determination claims that can be arrived at by the 1980s, which weren't even around in the 1940s. So federalism, devolution, uh, decentralization, resource sharing, cultural, linguistic, religious autonomy. There, there's a whole range of arrangements which which, which are out there for the choosing in the 1980s and 90s that weren't there in the 1940s. And it's a slow accretion of, of, both, of both international legal norms and practical experience which enable the international community to acknowledge an expanded conception of self-determination, but at the same time to contain it and to sort of domesticate it. So that rather than viewing self-determination as being a sort of either-or proposition, uh, there are a whole range of, of solutions that can be arrived at to try and adjudicate these claims. To give you one example, Indonesia, in Aceh, northern Sumatra where the tsunami hit in, in, in 2004, the Free Aceh Movement 
Gerakan Aceh Merdeka, formed in 1976. And it reflected Aceh's long sort of discomfort with, with the idea of incorporation into the Indonesian state. This is an armed movement, a self-determination movement that wanted independence, that granted their calls in part uh, on the basis of the exploitative economic arrangements that existed between Aceh and the central government in Java, which basically took the vast majority of the resources that were generated by oil extraction, natural gas extraction, without giving it to the Achenese. And their demands in 1976 until the early 2000s were independence. But the solution that's arrived at in 2000, after 2004, uh, arrived at in 2007 as a result of lengthy negotiations in Geneva, are, are regional autonomy. And so a solution is arrived at that provides for decentralization, that allows Aceh among, only Aceh among the provinces of Indonesia, to have local parties that don't have uh, a national base. So there's a, an Aceh party, uh, and there is no other party in Indonesia that's like the Aceh party. Aceh gets 70% of the resources from oil and natural gas exploration. And there's a whole range of sort of solutions that were arrived at which were inconceivable in the 1970s because the experience didn't exist. Uh, and so these kinds of claims are both proliferating, but they're becoming less dangerous uh, after the end of the Cold War. And this, is, this is a sort of two-step argument, I know. But I want to try and grapple with the, the sort of thickening of, of international society's ability to adjudicate these claims uh, and to not view them as, as being sort of normatively or, or even factually similar in 1949 and in 1989, because they're just not. So, yeah. Brad, maybe one, one more question. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, I'm Alan Sorkin from philosophy. Uh, so, this I suspect is uh, more long than a lot of your uh, conceptual history, intellectual history, whatever you call it. So, I'm sympathetic to the You mean collective self-determination or individual? Oh, well, you, I didn't know what we would be talking about for yeah. self-determination. Yeah. I can tell you a long story about autonomy. I can tell you a story that, if you like, you know, what's noticeably lacking in Plato's Republic is any mm -hmm. mention of autonomy yeah. as being something of value. Mm -hmm. Self-determination is a phrase. You, you, you chose it uh, for your title. I'm just wondering where that phrase occurs as a matter of looking it up in the OED, that we have an idea called self-determination. It's not autonomy. Yeah. Right? yeah. So I'm just asking that kind of, where do we start with this? Yeah. Its lineage is, is largely sort of early to mid-19th century, if I understand it correctly. And, and, and I have to go back and do some sort of reading in European intellectual history to, to, to really suss this out. And I think Eric Weitz has, has done some really good spade work in this respect. Um, Collective self-determination, self-determination of peoples is a late 19th, early 20th century phenomenon. Um, yeah, and it starts to, and it only really starts to gain traction, you know, in the sort of World War One period, as as you see here, when when you know, first when Lenin and others start sort of deploying the phrase to talk about 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 anti-colonialism, and when Woodrow Wilson sort of uses it uh, uh, after his 14 points talk. What I'm interested in is these collective understandings of self-determination. Um, but I, 
And, and, I, and there's a reason why I'm sort of choosing to start my story in 1941 rather than sort of 1900, in part because I think that, that, that Ares Manel has done a very good job of sort of covering this terrain in the post-World War I period, and the intellectual payoff for me to go back over that ground is not going to be that great, because I largely agree with him. So, so the reason I ask the question, the first part of that question is mm -hmm. this. I mean, if the Western notion, you said you want us to be the third world or non-Western notion, if the Western Yeah, and you may, you may be right, and I think there's, there's no easy answer to these questions because, of course, in the case of Southern Africa, uh, individual self-determination was, was exactly what, what, what the ANC and others were, were demanding. And many of the African states that supported the ANC, at least in the case of Southern Africa, were willing to acknowledge that self-determination was, about, was about, about representative government you know, of individuals because South Africa wasn't a case of a country that was going through a process of decolonization, external decolonization, but rather sort of internal decolonization. Uh, so looking at those places where we see convergence, I think, uh, tells us a couple things. One, the sort of fractured nature of the way that people are, are un trying to understand human rights and self-determination during this period, uh, but also the, the continued salience of, of this logic of self-determination, which was grounded in, in sort of liberal notions of either individual or collective governance, uh, and that I think emerge and, and become more prominent uh, in the 1980s and 90s, and I think play a very sort of strong uh, role in, in especially the Helsinki process and the, the movement in Eastern Europe, uh, in which those two conceptions were never really distinguished as being fundamentally different. They were seen as sort of linked. There's both the sort of Soviet occupation as well as the, as the, as the, the lack of political democracy within those countries, uh, which were the sort of twin concerns of those movements. So I think that trying to disentangle them and then put them back together is going to be a real challenge to me, but I think that you're right that they are very closely linked in some ways. Well, I think Professor Simpson will be around for a little while, and some people would like to speak with him informally, but I think we'll make the formal proceedings to a close. Thanks. Uh, thanks. You know, I, 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 another, another issue that sort of folds in here.